Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that's going to take us on a little journey through the second half of Act 4 of Henry V. How's that for a lot of uh, brackets? Um, so in our last episode, we went through the first three scenes of Act 4, which is all the stuff that happens before the battle. And now, here we are. We start off with alarm excursions, which sort of just means like a bout of fighting happens. And then enter Pistol, a French soldier who we haven't met before, and the boy who somehow is incredibly good at speaking French. <laughs> Yield, cur. Je pense que vous êtes le gentilhomme de bonne qualité. Quality, calmly custer me. Art thou a gentleman? What is thy name? Discuss. Oh, Seigneur Dieu. Oh, Seigneur Du should be a gentleman. Prepend my words, oh, Seigneur Du, and mark. Oh, Seigneur Du, thou diest on point of fox, except, oh, Seigneur, thou do give me egregious ransom. Oh, prenez miséricorde, aie pitié de moi. Moi shall not serve. I will have forty moys, for I will fetch thy rim out in thy throat in drops of crimson blood. Est-il impossible d'échapper la force de ton bras? Bras, Kirk? Thou damned and, uh, and luxurious mountain goat offerest me brass? Oh, pardonnez-moi. Sayest thou me so? Is that a ton of moys? Come hither, boy, ask this slave in French. What is his name? Écoutez, comment êtes-vous appelé? Monsieur Lefer. He says his name is Master Fur. Master Fur? I'll fur him and furk him and ferret him. Discuss the same in French unto him. I, I do not know the French for fur and ferret and furk. Bid him prepare, for I will cut his throat. Que dit-il, monsieur? Il me commande à vous dire que vous faites vous prêt, car ce soldat y est disposé tout à cette heure de couper votre gorge. Oh, couple of gorge, permafoy peasant. Unless thou give me crowns, brave crowns, or mangled shalt thou be by... Or mangled shalt thou be by this my sword. Oh, je vous, je vous supplie, pour l'amour de Dieu, me pardonnez. Je suis le gentilhomme de bon maison. Gardez ma vie et je vous donnerai deux cents sous. What are his words? He prays you to save his life. He is a gentleman of a good house, and for his ransom, he will give you two hundred crowns. Tell him my fury shall abate, and I the crowns will take. Petit monsieur, que dit-il? Encore qu'il est contre son jurement de pardonner. Aucune prisonnier, néanmoins, pour les écoutes que vous l'avez promis, il est content à vous donner la liberté, le franchissement. Sur mes genoux, je vous donne mes remerciements. Je m'estime heureux que je suis tombé entre les mains d'un chevalier. Je pense le plus brave, vaillant, et je très distingué seigneur de Angleterre. Expound unto me, boy. He gives you upon his knees a thousand thanks, and he esteems himself happy that he had fallen into the hands of one, as he thinks, the most brave, valorous, and thrice-worthy Signor of England. As I suck blood, I will some mercy show. Follow me. Suivez-vous, le grand capitaine. I did never know so full a voice issue from so empty a heart. But the saying is true. The empty vessel makes the greatest sound. Bardolph the Nim had ten times more valor than this roaring devil in the old play. 
that everyone may pare his nails with a wooden dagger, and they are both hanged. And so would this be if he durst steal anything adventurously. I must stay with the lackeys of the luggage of our camp. The French might have a good prayer of us if he knew of it, for there is none to guard it but boys. Amazing. <laughs> I love that we had these super rousing speeches in the previous scene, the maybe one of the most famous speeches of, of brotherhood and in battle that's ever been written. <laughs> And this is what we're gearing up for is like these comedy scenes of like a ton of moys and 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 all this stuff. You're gonna pay me in brass, you slick son of a bitch. You know, like it's just so to me, it's like this scene has to come after the previous scene, or it wouldn't be Shakespeare. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if you cut this scene when you're doing a production, you don't understand Shakespeare. Because this is always what he does, right? He'll set up something glorious and then undercut it with a scene of comedy immediately. Um, Which I feel like this is often cut, is it Yeah! Not? I was going to say, like, I don't remember this scene at all. <laughs> exactly! I feel like the more we... I mean, and now we're toward the end now, but the longer we get into this play, I'm like, wow, I don't know this play. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I'm like, I thought I knew this, but I guess I do not. Also, is it just me or is that the first mention of N Nim being hanged? I think it is the first mention of Nim being hanged. We know that Bardolph got hanged, but we didn't yeah. know that Nim got hanged until now. It's really uh, bummer. Sad bummer yeah. wow. <laughs> very much bummer yeah um, I feel that they often make more of a moment of the Bardolph you know usually I in product in the one production I saw you know it's usually staged or it's like a moment yeah. where you see Bardolph being led away or something like that but yeah what yeah did, I, what did Nim ever do <laughs> Pistol's also so confusing because it's like I feel like every scene he's in, people say different things about him. Yeah. He's Mark Antony, and now he's like an empty vessel with, you know, an empty heart. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, he's, I but guess he's who he needs to be to whoever. So when it's the boy speaking, somebody who he considers beneath him, he's kind of a dick. But if he's talking to like someone he considers valuable or higher up, he sort of plays that game, I suppose. And Mark Antony had kind of a, a downfall, though, didn't he? IRL, not in the play, in Shakespeare's play, but in history. Well, he does an empty theater. Yeah, and I really, the, um, the National Theater, total tangent, but it was really interesting how the National Theater handled Antony kind of being this washed up, you know, was it Bahama Joe or whatever kind of dude, <laughs> at least at the top of the show. That was great. You mean the Ray Fiennes one? Yeah, yeah. That was so good. I loved that production. I thought you were brilliant. <laughs> but that would be curious too if was Shakespeare's audience, would they be thinking of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar at that line? Was Caesar uh, Julius Caesar was written the same time as, uh, as uh, Henry V. It was written in That's the same right. year, which is interesting because there, there's definitely a lot of imagery about Julius Caesar that finds its way into both uh, this and another play that he started work on in 1599, Hamlet. 
Um, There's a lot of Julius Caesar imagery that sort of pervades all of all of these these plays and you get the feeling oh yeah that makes sense they were written around the same time the thing i would just love to say about pistol is that i think pistol he is exactly what the boy says about him which is he's got this incredible voice and this ability to use language in this really bombastic way but he's a total coward right and i think that's the part that fluellen when he was calling him mark antony has not you know, he was talking about how well he spoke and how well he swore. <laughs> and essentially that was, you know, his opinion of his valor had to do with his language, which is really interesting, right? That he knows the right words. But then as we see, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really have anything to, to back it up. How did the boy learn French is what I also want to know. Did he just like, is he just like a supremely well-educated young man because it, it wouldn't have been typical i think at the time unless people were of the nobility to learn french and i don't get the sense that that the boy comes from the nobility because he's definitely got the the sort of crafty um crafty smart servant vibe from commedia going on I think um, that's just one another thing that I love about Shakespeare. He doesn't give a shit if it if he needs to make it work. <laughs> he just makes it work, you know. He you know he chopped up words to make them fit into <laughs> verse, you know. He made up words when he didn't have a word. Like you yeah. know, he he was pretty punk rock like that. <laughs> totally. He she they. <laughs> what were your What were your thoughts, Zunum, um, about the boy in this scene and that that wonderful final speech that we get yeah i mean um i to me it's just this image of uh of kids who who learn really quickly or or that are much more agile in the language than their parents for example or whatever adults are in charge or whatever that they end up running the errands you know um or or being the interpreters for if I think of like families in the countryside and, and then kids when they come into the city and, and the kids are doing, you know, all the exchanges and all of that. Mm. So this is just kind of how I can make sense of it a little bit, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's what, uh, it's what you're saying um, too about maybe Shakespeare saying, just don't, just uh, suspend your disbelief a little bit and don't take it too seriously. <laughs> Yeah, there's this, this amazing speech and uh, bam, we're back in like the gutter and just whatever and cheers. And so, uh, yeah, I I think he's uh, also what with these speeches that he gives out to the audience, it seems like these little moments of solitude or mm. there, there aren't any with him with the other boys. And he's at this moment uh, doing a service to somebody else and then he joins the other lackeys with the luggage and stuff but he's he he, he is very independent like he says no i yeah. should get back oh yeah. I should do this i should do that um and it's kind of refreshing to, to have this little like spark uh to to kind of uh, balance out the other grungy characters or yeah. heroic characters or Ariana, wasn't there also a, a sense that since these plays were so long that people might have just been coming in and out a little bit, 
much the same they do to like go get a beer during the fifth inning of a baseball game or something like that. <laughs> I, I think feel that, like I heard yeah. that once that, you know, cause these were like, could go on for four hours and there was bear baiting and all this stuff that there was a sense of like, there's a, there's a little bit of something for everyone. And like some, some people didn't want to miss the comedy, but you know, I don't know. It's yeah. just interesting to think about. I think it was, a, it must've been, I mean, I, I'm not incredibly well-versed in the specifics um, of the play going history at the time, but I, I think it would have been a very different experience to the ones that we think of. I mean, I think our, our, when we picture a theater in our mind, it's like a darkened space where everyone's sort of quiet <laughs> and reverential. And I think this was, exactly the opposite of that it was daylight you know because there's no way to light a space that big at this point um and i think there were many distractions including but not limited to people selling food and drink and sex um mingling within the audience i think from what i have read it seems uh, pretty plausible that there were just like a lot of a, there was a lot of sort of mini capitalism going on <laughs> during this um there were a lot of things being sold including people's bodies um during this time um but i also i love who so naz tell us about this 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 french soldier beautifully read i don't speak french but you sounded great <laughs> it's true you really did <laughs> Very Did impressed. I say moi and like other things to make the pro to make it work to make pistols jokes work? Oh, I I think That's you can really interesting little wrinkle there in yeah. terms of pronunciation of French then compared to pronunciation right. of French now. Or it's oh, like yeah. doing you into some kind of mockery, you know, like of the app who the actor who's playing the French character, you know, making mm. a, sort of making fun of the language already. But then, it, I mean, he sort of hammers it home because then Pistol's also playing off of it. So it's like a double <laughs> a joke <laughs> on top of a joke. I like the O-we oh, for, for we, <laughs> O-W-I. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, I, I literally thought that was a typo. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I think it's actually it's like, in the text. Like, owie, 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 which I think would be just like perfect. The like cupola gorge, permafoy, you know, like it's, yeah. it's like having grown up in the Midwest. One of my favorites was Spanish class where you would get the Midwestern accent with Spanish, which is one of the most revolting sounds you've ever heard. You know, it, it would turn like hola me llamo you know or whatever or like grassy ass and I'm like that's nope that nope um and and I I think something similar is like is like happening here with the French that that pistol is speaking that maybe he does have these phrases but they're very much anglicized to a a degree that is horrific and comical at the same time um yeah, I feel like also just like this scene is just how showing just like how much we make fun of the French and everything. Oh, like Zoe was saying, with like the pronunciation, probably from the person who's playing the French soldier to the person who's playing pistol. And also just like the scene itself. Like it's just the French soldier just being like, here's money, bye. Like, please, like not even fighting for his country. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then that, that he's so lucky to be um, someone of the nobility um, because if he wasn't, you know, somebody would have killed him immediately, but because mm. he is ransomable, I don't think that's a word, but you know what? <laughs> We're making it up. Um, he is capable of being ransomed. There we go. He would be a valuable prisoner because this is how you make money when you're in war is you just hold the people who come from wealthy families kind of hostage and then you wait to get a payment and then they can go off and be free and you've made a, a whole lot of money um so it's actually kind of extraordinary that um in mean, i think it's the next scene maybe the scene after that because of some of the tactics henry orders the he orders everyone to kill their prisoners which is an extraordinary thing first of all because i don't i don't know if that was a typical thing to do during this time but that also that's a huge loss of revenue right as well yeah were there were there any other thoughts about this delightful little scene after we have we few we happy few we band of brothers and these are the brothers <laughs> like it's <laughs> You were talking about us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say, I like the, the sad bit of foreshadowing at the very end of the boy's speech saying, you oh, know, yeah. if the French knew it was, you know, it was just us that some little boys guarding the supplies, like we'd be done for. Yeah. And that's a little, you know, scary. That is foreshadowing so, moment. So sad. <laughs> they killed baby Christian Bale. <laughs> It's like baby Christian Bale plays the boy in the um, in uh, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. That guy's been in the industry for his whole life. He could hang over a shoulder for such a long walk. That long scene through the whole <laughs> battlefield, hanging over Kenneth Branagh's shoulder the whole time. Absolutely. I think, Naz, what you were saying actually, I, I think is so correct in the pushing the bounds of comedy with with the French soldier and just how sort of silly what he's saying actually is. I, I, I think I sent everyone a sort of translation of this, you know, on my knees, I give you a thousand thanks. I count myself fortunate that I've fallen into the hands of a gentleman. I think the bravest, most valiant and most very distinguished Lord of England, you know, which I love when the boy translates, he, he keeps Lord out of it. <laughs> He says, worthy senior. He's like, I don't even want you to get anywhere near that title pistol. You know, there, there's something really, really funny about that. And, and also just the, the process of translation, right? That, you know, he doesn't know how to say fur and furk and ferret him, which are these very strange, possibly invented Anglo-Saxon sounding words <laughs> that you can't translate into a Latin-based language. And permafoy as uh, by my faith, I think is, is, is uh, wonderful. Somehow it sounds like permafrost or something. I don't know. It just, <laughs> there's something about it that makes me laugh. And any, any final thoughts on the scene before we, we move to the more higher up Frenchies in the next scene? Okay. And we go to four or five. So the boy exited. And then we have in comes the constable, Orléans, uh, Bourbon, the Dauphin, and Rambert. I think we've met everyone, except I think this is the first time we're meeting 
what I would like to call bourbon because Delicious. favorite drink. Yum. So we have after they just went, ah, ha 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 ha. Let's cut our horses' hides and let the blood stream into the English eyes. That was sort of where we left them. And so now they come in and they say this. Ah, uh, diable. Oh, Seigneur, le jour est perdu. Tout est perdu. Mort Dieu, ma vie. All is confounded. All reproach and everlasting shame sits mocking in our plumes. Oh, méchante fortune, do not run away. Why, all our ranks are broke. Oh, perdra the shame, let's stab ourselves. Be these the wretches that we played at dice for? Is this the king we sent to for his ransom? Shame and eternal shame, nothing but shame. Let us die and once more back again, and he that will not follow Burbell now, let him go hence with his cap in hand like a base pander. Hold the chamber door whilst a base slave, no gentler than my dog, his fairest daughter is contaminated. Disorder that has spoiled us, friend us now. Let us on heaps go offer up our lives. We are enough yet in living in the field to smother up the English in our thrones. If any order might be thought upon. The devil take order now, I'll to the throng. Let life be short, else shame will be too long. Okay. <laughs> Bourbon, we've got to talk to you about your uh, images here. That's a whole lot. That was very uncomfortable to read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no kidding. This this reminds me of a, a similar moment we had where um, our dear friend Mike was reading the Archbishop of York in Henry the Fourth Part Two, and we got to this moment where he's talking about civil war, and he talks about dis what did he it, like a a wife that's annoying that's being beaten by her husband because he's annoyed by her. And so to stop her, he holds up his child. And he also, this is encased in a speech that begins with, we are all diseased. And we were sort of just like, what do we do with this guy? Like, how do we, it's, it's so revealing, right? The images that, that people use about like where their head is. <laughs> Um, and I just don't know what to do with this guy. Like, what? Hmm. Uh, uh. This right, is such yeah. a common thing, though, throughout the Henriette. I mean, even jokingly with the whole, what is it, herrings that they talk about in Henry IV, part one, and one of the tavern scenes, the stinking herrings, or basically talking about raping oh, women. Oh, stinking right? mackerel. Yeah. yeah that, that's that, right. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, if civil war continues, we will buy maiden heads as they buy hog nails by the hundreds, which is a supremely disturbing image as well. And land will be as cheap as stinking mackerel. And yeah, it's, we go, we've gone to some, some very, very intense places, I guess. Are there any, I, I love the Oh, perjurable shame, let's stab ourselves, Colin. I, I, I think that's an amazing <laughs> comparing it to like, I'm thinking of the other sort of great romantic suicides of like Romeo and Juliet. And somehow this, this doesn't quite hit you as emotionally as, as, as those ones do. But um, 
I just love that we've shifted from uh, digging our heels into the horses to stabbing ourselves now. And how, and so quickly. That was, it was a fast turnaround. Which I think is the point. Yeah. He can't, he doesn't, he cannot have enough fun ragging on these, these French. I mean, and this is all not to say that this wasn't an extraordinary military upset. And I think that's what, Part, partly what this, this scene was, was they were outnumbered anywhere from five to one to 12 to one. And they managed to not only win, but thrash uh, the forces. I mean, to the point, we're gonna get to the, the numbers of the, of the dead, but it, it was extraordinary. I mean, there's a reason that this is one of the most well-known battles in military history. It was such a surprise, you know, and I, I think I think this is this scene definitely helps to give us the sense of the shock uh, of the the forces that were so confident. But it's also a little bit funny as well. <laughs> it's heightened. The, yeah, those circumstances are 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 heightened for for the audience. It's drama. It's the drama. Uh, I also can't help noticing just in terms of the scene length that we, we have gone from these very big, long scenes. Our longest scene was at the beginning of act four with all these sort of little character interactions to another scene with the French to the we few, we happy few. And now we sort of land on these. Um, we haven't seen, we haven't seen the, the, the fighting English forces really, except for, except for pistols. So, and the scenes go from being 10 pages long to a page long. Um, so we're, I, I think even though there's eight scenes in this, which is very unusual for a Shakespeare play, there, there, there's definitely this back and forth, back and forth. Um, this is where it's helpful to have a really neutral set. <laughs> you don't want to have to do a scene change every five seconds any any other thoughts about about the french this is actually the last time that we see our our little french compatriots um besides the the bargaining scenes and besides mountjoy but other than that we we never see these guys again and i believe almost everyone here um dies in the battle i know the constable certainly does Rambur certainly does. The Dauphin also does. It's extraordinary how much of the sort of French royal family was destroyed in this battle as well. There's a lot of fun antitheses as well on this scene that I, that was the other thing I noticed. The, and, and implied antitheses, like this is the king as opposed to the one that we sort of thought of. I guess let's, let's move on to act four, scene six. So it looks like many of the French nobility have been captured by this. And I guess I would just also like to point out that for this being a play that's about war, we see a remarkably small amount of fighting on stage. This isn't like the end of Henry IV part one where we have something like seven fights that are written in. Like there, so far there hasn't been a single fight that's written in. Just a lot of people running across the stage having bouts of fighting which is just interesting to think about. There's no sort of climactic personal battle that we get, that we don't get a Hamlet Laertes fight, you know. We, we, this is beyond personal, it's, it's empire, right? Anyway, uh, whenever you're ready, Andrew. 
Well, have we done, thrice valiant countrymen, but all's not done, yet keep the French the field. The Duke of York commends him to your majesty. Lives he, good uncle? Thrice within this hour I saw him down, thrice up again and fighting, from helmet to the spur, all blood he was. In which array, brave soldier, doth he lie, larding the plain, and by his bloody side, yoke fellow to his honor owing wounds, the noble Earl of Suffolk also lies. Suffolk first died, and York all haggled over, comes to him where in gore he lay and steeped, and takes him by the beard, kisses the gashes that bloodily did yawn upon his face. He cries aloud, tarry my cousin Suffolk, my soul shall thine keep company to heaven. Tarry sweet soul for mine, then fly abreast, as in this glorious and well-foughten field we kept together in our chivalry. Upon these words I came and cheered him up. He smiled me in the face, wrought me his hand, and with a feeble grip says, Dear my lord, commend my service to my sovereign. So did he turn and over Suffolk's neck, he threw his wounded arm and kissed his lips, and so espoused to death. With blood he sealed a testament of noble ending love. The pretty and sweet manner of it forced those waters from me, which I would have stopped, but I had not so much of man in me, and all my mother came into mine eyes and gave me up to tears. I blame you not. For hearing this, I must perforce compound with mixedful eyes, or they will issue too. But hark, what new alarm is this same? The French have reinforced their scattered men. Then every soldier kill his prisoners. Give the word through. Wow. I think Exeter's speech is kind of one of the most beautiful it's, it's like much more beautiful than if we were to see this happen, right? The way that it's described, it's, 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 quite, it's quite a speech. Yeah, I think the storytelling monologues can be some of the best and in, in, in speeches can be some of the best in Shakespeare, even though we're taught not to work on them in school because they're not active enough. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, they're poetry, you know? It's, it's interesting you say that. Alexander, because I, 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 I've also, I've always had a, a similar, you know, people are like, oh, don't ever do the chorus speeches. But to me, it's like this choric speech is in essence exactly what we do as actors, right? We tell totally. stories. And so totally. if you're a good storyteller, this speech is riveting. Like, and yeah. it doesn't matter if the character is, you know, like just discovered that their mother was a goat or not you know like it's just like it's it, we don't need the emotional stakes that high the emotional stakes that are within the speech are are incredibly high and i yeah i think it's a, this incredible kind of i don't know there's the the mingling of of violence and sort of eroticism and the, it's, it's just kind of an extraordinary speech I also don't ever recall seeing this in a production this this must be something that's frequently cut as well but yeah what what were your thoughts Naz as you were as you were sort of going through this yeah it's really interesting because we just came from two scenes that you know had to deal with like death and war but were very comedic and very melodramatic yeah and then we come to Exeter having this long speech about this character i don't even remember yeah <laughs> you know he had like... two lines he had one <laughs> one of these characters we never met and the other one had two lines <laughs> right and i'm like at the end of this i'm like oh my god this is so moving i'm like so into this person and <laughs> like <laughs> but there were people who like were actually begging for their lives in the last two scenes and i felt nothing for them 
accurate. Well, and to me, it's again, right? It's about the the power of the language. We had we had a scene in um, that was all in prose, and then we had a scene that was sort of uh, verse that was mixed in with French, um, but. It, none of it was sort of describing the gore and the human loss of the battle, which Shakespeare never fails to put in as an important part. Julia, did you have, have something? Uh, I mean, I wanted to talk about the sort of like the way that this speech, like he says kissed and like put his arm around like yeah. just as much as like gore and bloodily and like kisses the gashes and like that sort of weird stuff and then it also struck me as you were saying that that because we've talked before about like the weirdly sort of like greco-roman nature of this play mm -hmm. and it just struck me about what you were saying in the previous scene about the fact that we never really this feels like a, a war play with no war in it yeah. like all the fights are off stage and that feels very greek to me that like this person comes in and is like this really horrible, violent thing just happened. Mm. But also, so I'm, I'm basically just like jumbling all these things that I'm thinking about the speech into one, but like to go back to this sort of, like, this noble love that they're talking about where these two men are like bleeding on each other and dying and like professing their like, professing their fealty in death to their king and to each other. And the, the, like the thing that you said, the like homoeroticism of war, seeing that in this space it's like it's this thing of it's so it's so like both ridiculous and also still moving at the same time to me mm. and I don't know if that's just like it, it like it seems like such a sort of like stereotype of men who are just like yes like together we die we're gonna die together and, but yes. then like it, it also like is very obviously tragic and intimate and like yeah it it this is the in, the only intimacy we see between like all of these characters is sort of like off stage while dying. Yeah. And I'm I'm please stop me at any point, but also the like <laughs> the, the the sort of like weird way that they're par like they're paralleling like kissing and bleeding and like wounds and yeah and um embrace. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that the mingling of violence and I don't know if it, I, I should say sexuality or eroticism, one or the other, or the third to quote something. And there is, there is a kind of mingling of, of, of different kinds of violence, right? Uh, of, I, th I think this speech also speaks to the emotional violence of watching someone that you love be killed and they're also related too, right? It's his cousin Suffolk. So we don't, they, they use that term much more general than we do. This wouldn't be like his first cousin on his mother's side. This is like cousin just means like anyone who's related to you somehow. And most of these people are related to each other. But there is, there is something to me, this, this is really gruesome, but this to me reminds me of Catherine and Alice's scene of the like what's the English for the elbow and what's the because it's like the gash is on it's it sort of is this like there was a, a particular kind of poetry at this time that was like an inventory sonnet of like that Shakespeare parodied brilliantly with um I forget the number of the sonnet but you know my 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 mistress eyes are nothing like the sun right he was parody parodying that particular type of 
over the top, like, oh, she's the moon and the ocean all in one and her eyebrows, great, you know, like, but there is something about this kind of inventory of this damaged body that to me is much more moving than, than, than sort of like love poetry, if that makes sense. Yeah, it also feels like this, with the sort of decay of the body, like exists like the decay of sort of like the barriers of sort of like heteronormative masculinity mm. of just sort of like, well, now that my body is no more, like I, I can like, exp- like that, that line is just like, I can't stop reading it and kissed his lips and so espoused to death. Like, okay, yeah. so now that you're marrying death, yeah. Like with blood sealed, a testament of noble ending love. That's insane. That's yeah. an insane poetry. I just like, it's like, it's almost, I think this was actually King John that we talked so much about, like <laughs> the sort of like papal notes of everything. Mm, but it's, like, mm-hmm. it's this weird, like nun thing where they say like nuns are like married to Jesus, you know? Yeah. And yeah. this thing of like men are married to death. Yeah. And like, that's like why going to war is such an honor is that you're like, you're, ach- you're achieving the thing that you're here to do. Yeah. It's like the, the, the highest glory is you're like, you're married to and death. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I really wish Jesse were here because, uh, so Jesse wrote my thesis show uh, when I was an undergrad and it was this amazing, really disturbing show. And one of, so in the first half of the play, it was like I was I was giving birth while I was being murdered. And in the second half of the play, at the end, I was like preparing for my marriage with death. And I like shot myself in the head. And that was, that was like the end of the play. But so it was these two different rituals. Yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. But the marriage with death is like traditionally, and because in the second half I was playing Hedda Gabler, right? She does that at the at the end of the play. She sort of takes on this incredibly masculine role of sort of marrying death, which is which is a, a sort of interesting change in the history of theater, right? For a woman to shoot herself is just not something that that happens very, very often. But I don't know why I'm thinking about it. But yeah, the marriage to death. I remember that was like the second half of the play is the ritual of marrying death. But there is there is something very physical. Like there's just something about this speech that's just visceral. Like I, I, I don't I don't quite know how to how else to describe it. It's just well, and it's also very striking to have such intimate homoerotic sex and death followed up by like blatant sexism. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, of just like follows yes. hard upon. It's yes, like, let's not let's of course <laughs> remember the shoe that drops at the end of this speech. Yeah. <laughs> it's also so interesting that like to me, and perhaps this is like a you know just like a me thing, but it's also like it's this it's this incredibly sad like these people are dying, and like it makes you think about like the gravity of what's going on, and then immediately after that, Henry's like go go tell everyone to kill all of their prisoners like this this this, like like beautiful speech about like love and brotherhood and death is like to me conjures up like empathy and compassion and like all that kind of stuff but for for Henry it conjures up like like even more his sort of like this is a political thing like Hmm. 
I, I don't know. That, does that make any sense? It just feels like, like in the face of, in the face of, of death and of, you know, a spouse to death, the blood he sealed, the testament of noble ending love. He's yeah. sort of like, all right, well, let's do that to all of the prisoners. Like it's, mm. I don't know. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. It feels well, like, just like a, I would love to talk about that that turn because it, it it does happen so so quickly. And Andrew, I was I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about the um about this turn at the end that he has and what sort of provokes him. I guess I'm also just struggling with the sort of meaning of his of his of this ending speech and exactly what's going on. Um, because mm. he, he doesn't say now every he says then as if like it's like we're waiting for some information somehow. I don't, I don't know. Oh, um, hmm. Yeah. I, to me, the course is, or the, uh, the thought process is this, um, well, it's not really a thought process. The emotional process is this, uh, coming from Exeter's speech, which is very much for all of us, a reminder of our own mortality as well as that of those we love to the to the ex, to the um, extreme that it causes us us uh, manly men to weep <laughs> this news that the french have rallied drives it follows i i feel if the french have rallied the, the reason for me to order the killing of the prisoners is because this is our last um we're very near to death. Mm -hmm. We can't, you don't kill your prisoners unless your uh, choice is between death and some slim chance of survival because you want those ransoms, right? You need yeah. those prisoners. So the only reason to kill them is because it's your only way of making it through. And even that is a slim chance. Mm. So, so I read it as, um, this reminder from Exeter in the scene with Suffolk and um, York uh, brings us to the deepest, darkest point of despair, really. And the news on top of that, that the French have rallied, uh, this is our lowest point, the end of this scene. Mm. That's my reading. And, and I suppose that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I also suppose that perhaps this hearing of the people on your side dying in such a horrific and bloody way could motivate more of us of a of a push to defend those that are left um perhaps right we have we either have to take this last desperate effort or we should steal ourselves to end up like that in a few moments mm. Well, and, and it, it doesn't seem, the thing about this, this ending part that just always bugs me is that I think most people kind of cut, most productions I've seen cut this little bit. And it's because it's very clear in the way that they cut it, that it's because the French came and slaughtered all the boys, which is a war crime at this time is why Henry orders the killing of the prisoners. But we don't find out that the boys have been killed until the first line of the next scene, which is the part that kind of is, I, I guess is what sort of makes me go, hmm, now why did he, you know? 
um, yeah, that, that was, that was. Well, sure. Uh, definitely. It's a lot easier to understand it if we, if we learn that first, but I don't think, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's necessary mm. uh, gi given that. Well, if you cut the Exeter speech, totally, then you have to, then you have to find out about the boys first in order for Henry not to seem a monster, but I, seems to follow to me in mm. if the exeter speech is there interesting interesting i also think it's it's interesting right that this is because exeter is the uncle of the king that it's also two kinsmen talking about two of their other kinsmen so it's it's kind of this very private almost family moment between between the two of them even though there's in the folio there are supposed to be other people there but nobody says anything it, it does seem to be a very personal moment in a, in a, in a big bunch of battle, a bunch of battle. I don't think that's a thing. I wanted to mention that stage direction at the top um, and bring our attention to the fact that the prisoners are actually on stage. Yeah. It says, uh, enter the king and his train with prisoners. Yeah. Ooh. Does that happen on stage? <laughs> Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, Zoe played Vernon in the production of Henry the Fourth Part One that I directed, and I made a rather controversial decision to kill Worcester and Vernon on stage as they were prisoners. Um, bear Worcester to the death and Vernon too. Instead of taking him off stage, we decided to kill him on stage, which I thought was horribly shocking. Um, but yeah, I wonder, I do wonder if that, if that happens on stage, uh, if you're staging it, does that happen immediately? If so, that I don't know what to think of that. I don't think I've ever seen a production where that happened, but, um, yeah. Do we know if it's historically accurate? I, oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if, uh, enough about military history. I just think it's interesting to think about the liberties Shakespeare would have taken with the queen's kin and would not have. Mm hmm Absolutely. Well, as we're going to learn from Flewellen, there, there were some rules of battle. And one of them was you don't kill the little boys who have marched there as flag bearers and drummers. That is not something you do in warfare. They would get killed, but it was usually an accident. And this is, they have killed all of the young boys. So I missed this topic train like an hour ago, but um, d the discussion of um, like the itemization of the body um, mm. immediately stuck out in my head to some of the first scenes in Coriolanus where they evoke that like biblical parable of um, like a, a society or a group of people as a body. It's like, oh, can the mm. body live without the eyes, without the hand? And so I can see part of a reading of this as the body just being the, the army, the group. And I guess that both um, leans in uh, towards and away from homoeroticism mm. in that respect. Also, I mean, a lot of uh, the Henriad, there are very few women and very few women who have meaningful relationship with any of the men, even Catherine, you know, she meets him at the very end, right? But Hal has always had this really strong male intimacy, romantic, maybe sexual, not always. And that's something that needs to be addressed here as well. Um, I think that it's, there's nothing inherently wrong with any sort of, uh, gay anything or gay reading or queer no Shakespeare as you've talked about Colin I think that's very valid and very beautiful um, but also looking at the way that men can be intimate even avoiding that I think that's a beautiful thing to look at too like 
something that, again, Noah had to fight for when we did Henry IV Part One was after he, as Hal, killed Hotspur, he covered his face with his uh, with a scarf and then kissed him. And it wasn't sexual and it wasn't romantic. It was just this very intimate thing. And he had to fight for that. But mm-hmm. a lot, you did not like that initially. Jeff was kind no. of confused by initially. Our uh, intimacy director did like it though. Yeah. So there was that. Um, but I think, I don't know, I think that's a very interesting thing when you don't have those more heteronormative intimate relationships in the play like you really don't get those in a lot of the history plays I think that's a very interesting thing to look at um also along those lines something that I was thinking about with this speech a lot was it's kind of funny and cyclical because I mean I know that I'm sure there's a lot of you know as Julia saying Greco-Roman influence here and then this reminded me a lot of Dennis O'Hare's beautiful one man play an Iliad Mm. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but it's very much about kind of that uh, level of male intimacy between soldiers. And so I think that's really interesting. There is a, a, a long and, and a long and sort of glorious tradition of those, those kinds of relationships being portrayed in, in, in drama, in, in theater. Um, uh, Andrew. Um, change of topic. Uh, I just wanted to say, going back to an earlier topic, I just wanted to say on the historicity of the killing of the prisoners, and I was just refreshing my memory on uh, good old Wikipedia here, but um, (laughs) uh, Henry did order the killing of the prisoners, um, and it was in response to the, of course, we can't speculate on his reasons, I'm sure, but it was in response to to an apparent rally uh, of the French uh, forces. But Mm -hmm. what the chroniclers and the different accounts uh, don't seem to agree on is whether the baggage train had been attacked before or after. So it's interesting that different Mm. uh, preparations of this play might place, uh, might change that uh, continuity or that uh, causality by how they cut it. Absolutely. Well, and it, and it also, you know, it just, is the act itself justifiable is an interesting question as well. Um, no matter, no matter what, no matter what justification, you know, that we can come up with. Was it against the laws of war to execute prisoners the same way it was to execute the boys? I, I don't know. Um, Sounds like something you'd know, Andrew. <laughs> Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, if they're both against the laws, then it that it makes a little more sense, I guess. But well, Flewellen in the next scene, his second line is, "Tis expressly against the law of arms uh, to kill the boys and the luggage." Uh, Right. So I'm going to say that yeah, it was a, a a war crime. To kill the innocents, mm-hmm. but are but are uh, prisoners innocent the same way the boys are? Well, I think there's definitely something to be talked about of the <laughs> cold-blooded versus hot-blooded killing, right? I mean, on the battle, the assumption is that it's everyone's kind of fighting for their life. If they're prisoners, they're not actively fighting, and in that moment, and so there is more of a sort of calculated. Um, let's, let's hear more about the boys and the luggage. Let's, let's go on to Flewellen, who I, I think is, is, is pretty upset in this next scene. 
so income our our favorite little one two comedy duo of Fluellen and Gower <laughs> um, our Welsh captain and our English captain kill the poise and the luggage Tis expressly against the law of arms. Tis as errant a piece of knavery, mark you now, as can be offered in your conscience now, is it not? Tis certain there's not a boy left alive, and the cowardly rascals that ran from the battle have done this slaughter. Besides, they have burned and carried away all that was in the king's tent, wherefore the king most worthily hath caused every soldier to cut his prisoner's throat. Oh, tis a gallant king. Aye, he was born at Monmouth, Captain Gower. What call you the town's name where Alexander the Pig was born? Alexander the Great. Why, I pray you, is not Pig Great? The Big or the Great or the Mighty or the Huge or the Magnemonious are all one reckoning, save the phrase is a little variations. I think Alexander the Great was born in, it's Macedon? Is that how that would be said, Ari? I think Macedon. Macedon Macedonia. You smart. Okay, I <laughs> was born in Macedon. His father was called Philip of Macedon, as I take it. I think it is in Macedon where Alexander is born. I tell you, Captain, if you look in the maps of the world, I warrant you shall find in the comparisons between Macedon and Monmouth that the situations, look you, is both alike. There is a river in Macedon, and there is moreover a river in Monmouth. It is called Y at Monmouth, but it is out of my brains what is the name of the other river. But tis all one, tis alike as my fingers is to my fingers, and there are salmons in both. If you mark Alexander's life well, Harry of Monmouth's life has come after it indifferent well, for there is figures in all things. Alexander, God knows, and you know, in his rages and his furies and his wraths and his collars and his moods and his displeasures and his indignations, and also being a little intoxicates in his brains, did in his ales and angers look you kill his best friend Cletus. Well, King is not like him in that. He never killed any of his friends. It is not well done, mark you now, to take the tales out of my mouth ere it is made and finished. I speak but in the figures and comparisons of it. As Alexander killed his friend Cletus, being in his ales and his cups, so also Harry Monmouth, being in his right wits and his good judgments, turned away the fat knight with the great belly doublet. He was full of jests and gipes and knaveries and mocks. I have forgot his name. Sir John Falstaff. That is he, I'll tell you. There is good men born at Monmouth. Here comes his majesty. I was not angry since I came to France until this instant. Take a trumpet, Harold. Ride thou unto the horsemen on yon hill. If they will fight with us, bid them come down or void the field. They do offend our sight. If they'll do neither, we will come to them and make them scur away as swift as stones and force it from the old Assyrian slings. Besides, we'll cut the throats of those we have, and not a man of them that we shall take shall taste our mercy. Go and tell them so. Here comes the herald of the French, my liege. His eyes are humbler than they used to be. How now? What means this, herald? Knowst thou not that I have find these bones of mine for ransom? Come, comest thou again for ransom? No, great king. I come to thee for charitable license that we may wander o'er this bloody field to book our dead and then to bury them to sort our nobles from our common men. For many of our princes, woe the while, lie drowned and soaked in mercenary blood. So do our vulgar drench their peasant limbs in blood of princes, and the wounded steeds fret fetlock deep in gore, and with wild rage jerk out their armed heels at their dead masters, killing them twice. Oh, give us leave, great king, to view the field in safety and dispose of their dead bodies. 
I tell thee truly, Herald, I know not if the day be ours or no, for met yet a many of your horsemen peer and gallop o'er the field. The day is yours. Praise it be God and not our strength for it. What is this castle called that stands hard by? They call it Agincourt. Then call we this the field of Agincourt, fought on the day of Crispin Crispianus. Your grandfather of famous memory, and please your majesty, and your great uncle Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, as I have read in the chronicles, fought a most brave battle here in France. They did, Flewellen. Your majesty says very true. If your majesty's is remembered of it, the Welshmen did good service in a garden where leeks grow, wearing leeks in their Monmouth caps, which your majesty know to this hour is an honorable badge of the service. And I do believe your majesty takes no scorn to wear the leek upon St. Davy's Day. I wear it for a memorable honor, for I am Welsh, you know, good countryman. All the water and why cannot wash your majesty's Welsh blood out of your body. I can tell you that. God bless it and preserve it, as long as it pleases his grace and his majesty too. Thanks, good my countrymen. By Cheshu, I am your majesty's countryman. I care not who know it. I will confess it to all the world. I need not be ashamed of your majesty, praised be God, as long as your majesty is an honest man. God keep me so. Our heralds go with him. Bring me just notice of the numbers dead on both our parts. Call yonder fellow hither. Soldier, you must come to the king. Soldier, why wearest thou that glove in thy cap? And it please your majesty, tis the gauge of one that I should fight withal if he be alive. An Englishman? And it please your majesty, a rascal that swaggered with me last night, who, if alive, and ever dare to challenge this glove, I have sworn to take him a box of the ear. Or if I can see my glove in his cap, which he swore as he was a soldier he would wear, if alive. I will strike it out soundly. What think you, Captain Flewellen? Is it fit this soldier keep his oath? He is a craven and a villain else, and please your majesty in my conscience. It may be his enemy is a gentleman of great sort, quite from the answer of his degree. Though he be as good a gentleman as the devil is, as Lucifer and Beelzebub himself, it is necessary, look your grace, that he keep his vow and his oath. If he be perjured, see you now, his reputation is as an errant, is as errant a villain and a jack of sauce as ever his black shoe trod upon God's ground's ground, and his earth in my conscience law. Then keep thy vow, Sirrah, when thou meets the fellow. So I will, my liege, as I live. Who serves thou under? Under Captain Gower, my liege. Gower is a good captain, and is good knowledge and literature in the wars. Call him hither to me, soldier. I will, my liege. Here, Flewellen, wear thou this favor for me and stick it in thy cap. When Alan John and myself were down together, I plucked this glove from his helm. If any man challenge this, he is a friend to Alan John and an enemy to our person. If thou, encount if thou encounter any such, apprehend him and thou dost love me. Your grace does me as great honors as can be desired in the hearts of his subjects. I would fain see the man that, but ha that has but two legs that shall find himself aggrieved as this glove. That is all, but I would fain see it once and please God of his grace that I might see. Knowest thou Gower? He is my dear friend and please you. 
pray thee, go seek him and bring him to my tent. I will fetch him. My lord of Warwick and my brother Gloucester, follow Fluellen closely at the heels. The glove which I have given him for a favor may happily purchase him a box of the ear. It is the soldier's. I by bargain should wear it myself. Follow good cousin Warwick. If that the soldier strike him, as I judge by his blunt bearing, he will keep his word, some sudden mischief may arise of it. For I do know Fluellen valiant and touched with collar, hot as gunpowder, and quickly will return an injury. Follow and see there be no harm between them. Go you with me, uncle of Exeter. Okay. <laughs> Lovely. Um, weird time to wrap up this little bit. Right? <laughs> it's like we just found out what the losses are. We've won the day. Oh, there's the glove. <laughs> yeah. He really doesn't waste any time when he has a plot thread to tie up, does he? <laughs> no, not at all. Just to follow right on the end of the battle and the conclusion of the, the climax. Absolutely. What was I going to say? The um, I think it is very important that we get this line of Fluellen's uh, right before Williams enters. I need not be ashamed of your majesty. Praise be God. So long as your majesty is an honest man. God keep me so in walks Williams. It's like, aha, this is a test. I think this is a test uh, of Henry. And is he going to be honest? Is he going to live up to Fluellen's great standards? Um, there is there is something kind of comedic to me about that that entry. Like I think it would be really great if it was kind of played for laughs and it was like, God keep me so. Oh shit! You know, like there's there's the soldier <laughs> with the entrance. Um, we see like we see the ghost of Falstaff again. You know, for a play that has is so notably absent of Falstaff. There's so much Falstaff in it yeah and also like yeah it's this thing of like he he speaks the name into the space earlier and then what should happen next but suddenly like henry five is is sort of like tickled by this urge to like plant a glove into fluellen's hat so that fluellen will get his ass kicked like it, it's just like <laughs> immediately like one win and he's just sort of like i gotta pull a prank on this guy who's just <laughs> sworn like his loyalty to me and like said that i'm a good man and like i guess i gotta fuck this up <laughs> so crazy that's wonderful julia it is a very false staff thing to do isn't it that's yeah really funny <laughs> i hadn't thought of that well, it's a very it's a very how thing to do yes <laughs> I think that, I mean, as looking at this trilogy of plays in particular all together, so much of it is about Hal finding his identity and kind of because, you know, he is, you know, a goofball sort of in the first one, then he becomes the prince and he's the king and finding ways to balance that nobility with who he truly is. And I think this scene is, even though it's, you know, it opens so horribly, we've got these two this exchange about, oh yeah, all of the boys have been murdered, and then it turns into jokes, and then it's this prank. It's like, Shakespeare, what are we doing? <laughs> Total consistency, maybe, a little bit, but anyway, for how that's a nice little arc. I like that. Yeah, it feels like it must be that, too, right? Because, like, if this were, you know, Henry V, the 
blockbuster film in 2020, I could see the producers being like, like, no, you have to have that confrontation between where it's revealed that Henry was the guy, because that's, that's the kind of classic um, plot device, you know, of like, oh, it wasn't just some guy, it was the king, shame on me, but that does not happen. That's really interesting. It's so, it's like, it kind of like itches at me just a little bit because as I've sort of been saying through this whole play, like not really quite understanding Flewellen. Um, and also just like, I feel like so much of, of my like trying to understand him has been like trying to come to terms with like what it means to have a Welsh character who speaks the way a Welsh person quote unquote would speak in a, in a play like this. And the way that so much of this play is like mocking people for the way that they speak and mm -hmm. trying to sort of come to terms with that because he is such a sort of like earnest quote, honorable character. And yet, and, and so you're sort of, and he, and in this scene, you know, he has this thing where he's like, he's connecting with the King and being like, you were born where I was born. Like we have this connection, like you are my kinsman. And you know, we've just been through this battle and there is this, like, we've seen all this, like the great brotherhood of man, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the sort of like insult of then being the butt of the King's joke is so hard for me to sort of come to terms with. And I know we're gonna see it resolved in the next scene, but it's just so hard to sort of be like, in this scene, he sort of like embraces his Welsh heritage and embraces his Welsh countrymen and then immediately attempts to make him look ridiculous. <laughs> in like the same breath. Yeah. It's so I, I wonder if there's if I wonder if there's another way to read that, which is that uh, Henry, who has been struggling throughout this this uh, series of plays with his own nature and what he needs to be versus what he wants to be, um, has been being a king f for a good while now. Um, and uh, I wonder if there's a way in which when you find someone with whom uh, you can connect, with who, who is your countryman, um, with whom you share a respect and a um, mutual knowledge, uh, who else uh, could you be comfortable playing a practical joke on and being a little bit of yourself, of your house self for a little while again? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and like totally fair read. I think it's just sort of because I've I've been struggling so much to sort of like get on this character's side. I'm suddenly feeling very like defensive about him. <laughs> so I'm like, don't make fun of him. He's like, the audience has been making fun of him the whole time. <laughs> but yeah, well, I think Welsh. Yeah, he's Welsh. I mean, God forbid, you know. I mean, in previous. Um, Henry plays the Welsh have been on the other side and here they are fighting together and the Welshman is saying but but hell you're one of us you're Welsh blood you know you're a Welsh king um so I I just take Flewellen as kind of comical but very very what was what was the uh, my my big fat Greek wedding where the father was all the time saying oh the Greeks did that oh the Greeks you know invented that <laughs> Well, I see Flewellen is throughout this play. Oh, the Welsh. Yeah, we did that. You know, Ali 
Exactly. Okay. Oh, it's just like Monmouth. It's it's you know these are identical places where yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> so I like, kind of take Llewellyn as being kind of, and I I think that he realizes that he is that he is a little bit on the comedy that he's just so. Um, you know, the Welsh are the best things since sliced bread. And did you know the prince was Welsh? You know. <laughs> they also invented Windex. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> uh, sorry, Julia, what were you going to say? <laughs> oh, nothing of importance. Uh, I, it, it's that thing of like intellectually, I, I, I think that everybody's read is totally right and real and really interesting. But I think just like reading it myself, I have, I just, I, I'm just like, oh, this poor, like, <laughs> poor sack of whatever he is. Sack you know? of leeks. <laughs> this poor, yeah, this poor leek and potato soup with a hat. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, I just, I want, I, I maybe the, the, the just the, the person in me that like craves justice is just like, oh, come on. Like <laughs> you can't have like one moment of like having any sort of dignity, but it, it, it is true. It is like after, after a scene where people are marrying death and like we kill all the like standard bearing boys for no reason. And like the day is finally won, like the giddiness and adrenaline of being like, I, I have to, I have to pull this prank. Like I have to do this thing. There has to be some moment of levity. And also I, I think like Andrew said, it's, it's super interesting that like Hal is the one that feels he needs to, he needs to like breathe that levity into the place. Like mm. it, it, it almost feels like it's part of his responsibility, you know, like he's been leading them this far and he's been giving these speeches of like once more onto the breach, you know, and like, you know, the St. Crispin's Day speech, like he's been, saying all these things and like it feels like in this moment in like like everybody said his journey from Hal to Henry V you know like the the moment of him being like perhaps my job is not only to lead these people into battle but also to sort of like absolve them of what they've done here today and allow them to return to life to life as like as as men you know Absolutely. And to allow them, allow them to sort of like take a deep breath and leave what they've done behind. Um, I, I wonder if it's also kind of the, the natural conclusion of the, for he today that fights this day with me shall be my brother, you know, yeah. that, that I think it's very significant that he has two brothers that are in the play neither of them has more than four lines the people who are now his brothers are these people you know the people who fought with him um and to me there is you know for, there's none of you i mean it's an incredible incredible speech right that there's none of you here so vile which to us is like hey rude but the here meaning of course lower class not born into the nobility that has not noble luster in your eyes and there's something to me about that the conclusion he also it's it it is important to note that he also does say i think fluellen might kick this other guy's ass too like that's sort of where he leaves it is he's like he might get bopped but fluellen's like a really good fighter and he he might he might give him a one-two punch of course then that's like it's even worse for this poor guy williams right who just has no idea what's coming 
but uh but yeah i i do I, want oh maybe, sorry go ahead andrew i was just gonna say how may be playing a, a a familial practical joke on fluellen but he's being an absolute ass to williams <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah i mean this poor guy and i, I actually i i let's jump right into to four eight because i think his response when he finds out that it was the king is 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 a remarkable uh, speech that he gets. Um, so yeah, let's just, let's see the conclusion of this practical joke we've been, <laughs> we've been talking about. So we just had uh, the, everyone exited and Williams has gone to get Gower to bring him to the King. And um, that is where we begin our final scene of act four. I warrant it is tonight you captain. God's will and his pleasure, Captain. I beseech you now, come apace to the king. There is more good towards you per peradventure than is in your knowledge to dream of. Sir, know you this glove? Know the glove? I know the glove is a glove. I know this, and thus I challenge it. Blood, an errant traitor as any's in the universal world or in France or in England. How now, sir, you villain? Do you think I'll be forsworn? Stand away, Captain Gower. I will give treason his payment into plows, I warrant you. I am no traitor. That's a lie in thy throat. I charge you in his majesty's name. Apprehend him. He is a friend of the Duke Alcin Alan Alençon? Alençon? I, I think it's Alençon. Okay. Um, anyone who speaks French want to chime in here, as I do not. <laughs> Vaguely right. from what I remember from high school, that sounds right. So go with that, I guess. <laughs> uh, how now? How now? What's the matter? My Lord of Warwick, here is, praised be God for it, a most contagious treason come to like. Look you, as you shall desire in a summer's day. Here is his majesty. How now? What's the matter? My liege, here is a villain and a traitor that, look your grace, has struck the glove which your majesty has taken out of the helmet of Alençon. My liege, this was my glove. Here is the fellow of it. And he that I gave it to in change promised to wear it in his cap. I promised to strike him if he did. I met this man with my glove in his cap and I've been as good as my word. Your majesty here now, saving your majesty's manhood, what an errant, rascally, beggarly, lousy knave it is. I hope your majesty is bear me testimony and witness and will avouchment that this is the glove of Alençon, <laughs> that your majesty is give me in your conscience now. Give me thy glove, soldier. Look, here is the fellow of it. Twas I indeed thou promisedst to, wow, promisedst to strike, and thou hast given me most bitter terms. And please, your majesty, let his neck answer for it, if there is any martial law in the world. How canst thou make me satisfaction? All offenses, my lord, come from the heart. Never came any from mine that might offend your majesty. It was ourself thou didst abuse. Your majesty came not like yourself. You appeared to me but as a common man. Witness the night, your garments, your lowliness. And what your highness suffered under that shape, I beseech you, take it for your own fault and not mine. For had you been as I took you for, I made no offense. Therefore, I beseech your highness, pardon me. Here, Uncle Exeter, fill this glove with crowns and give it to this fellow. Keep it, 
fellow, and wear it for an honor in thy cap till I do challenge it. Give him the crowns, and captain, you must needs be friends with him. By this day and this light, the fellow has metal enough in his belly. Hold, there's a twelvepence for you, and I pray you to serve God and keep out of prowls and prabbles and quarrels and dissensions, and I warrant you it is the better for you. I will none of your money. It's with a good will. I can tell you it will serve you to mend your shoes. Come, wherefore should you be so bashful? Your shoes is not so good. Tis a good ceiling, I warrant you, or I will change it. Now, Harold, are the dead numbered? Here's the number of the slaughtered French. What prisoners of good sort are taken, uncle? Charles, Duke of Orléans, nephew to the king, John, Duke of Bourbon, and Lord Bouquicot, and other lords and barons, knights and squires, full 1,500 besides common men. This note doth tell me of 10,000 French that in the field lie slain, of princes in this number and nobles bearing banners, there lie dead 126. Added to these of knights, esquires, and gallant gentlemen, 8,000 and 400, of the which 500 were but yesterday dubbed knights. So that in these 10,000 they have lost, there are but 1,600 mercenaries. The rest are princes, barons, lords, knights, squires, and gentlemen of blood and quality. The names of those their nobles that lie dead, Charles d'Albert, High Constable of France, Jacques of Châtillon, Admiral of France, the Master of the Crossbows, Lord Rambours, Great Master of France, the brave Sir Guichard Dauphin, Jean, Duke of Alençon, Antony, Duke of Brabant, the brother to the Duke of Burgundy, and Edward, Duke of Bar, of lusty earls, Grandpre and Roussy, Faucomberges and Fou, Beaumont and Marl, Vaudemont and Lestrel. Here was a royal sh fellowship of death. Where is the number of our English dead? Edward, the Duke of York, the Earl of Suffolk, Sir Richard Kiley, Davy Gam, Esquire. None else of name and of all other men but five and twenty. Oh, God, thy arm was here. And not to us, but to thy arm alone ascribe we all, when without stratagem, but in plain shock and even play of battle, was ever known so great and little loss. On one part and on the other, take it, God, for it is none but thine. Tis wonderful. Come, go we in procession to the village, and be it death proclaimed through our host to boast of this, or take that praise from God which is his own, his only. Is it not lawful and please your majesty to tell how many is killed? Yes, captain, but with this acknowledgement that God fought for us. Yes, my conscience, he did us great good. Do we all holy rites? Let there be sung non nobis and te deum, the dead with charity enclosed in clay, and then to Calais, and to England then, or never, where ne'er from France arrived more happy men. Wow. So they really didn't lose a lot of people, huh? 29 versus 8,000 or 10,000? 
Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah, there, there is an interesting kind of eeriness to the speech, to, to Henry's, uh, the speech that you just had of, of the listing of the French lords, because the King of France listed all those same names when he was calling them to defend France and here their names are as numbers of the dead. There's, there's an interesting sort of parallelism there, I think. Yeah, any, any thoughts about this, the, the sort of ending point, and then let's go back and talk about our Fluellen Williams um, encounter at the beginning. <laughs> Maybe we'll just go talk about Fluellen and Williams at the beginning. <laughs> I, I, I love the I, glove is a glove. Yes. Sorry, Andrew? I was just going to say, I don't have anything to say because I'm stumped by the, the idea that... Uh, God fighting on your side um, makes the catastrophic losses on the other side all right somehow. Yeah. Although Henry doesn't seem to think that. Yeah. Um, to 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 say that um, you'll suffer death if you boast uh, of this win is a pretty mm, well. That's a strong statement. Yeah. Clearly, I think Henry had not heard the great Bob Dylan's God on Our Side song. <laughs> like, clearly, <laughs> he needs some, some brushing up on, on folk music. <laughs> it's like after the scene, it just feels like the play is done. Like, I'm yeah. surprised there's another act. I know it's like very short, but it's like so strange to me because it feels like we've won. Yeah. Like if yeah. this play ended on where Nair from France arrived more happy men, I would feel satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> the one time I actually saw this, it was a, so the, I used to be involved in a Shakespeare in the Park company in Wichita, Kansas, where our thing was 90 minute Shakespeare. And this one was cut to shreds, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was where it ended. They completely cut everything else after it. And it did actually feel like a pretty satisfactory ending. I don't necessarily, uh, I would much rather have more of it, of course, but for what you're working with when you're dealing with, you know, sunlight disappearing and things like that, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this works. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a similar, I think there's a similar thing. I remember uh, having a conversation with Ben a long time ago and I was like, what do you do with the Merchant of Venice, the fifth act of Merchant of Venice? And he's like, you cut it. <laughs> and I feel like there's a, you know, it's like all the stuff with the ring and the what. he's like, you cut it, you just cut it. And I feel like there, there is definitely, there's a couple, a couple plays like this where it feels like you kind of have an ending already at the end of act four. And then act five, you're sort of like, what are we, what are we doing? <laughs> What's the game plan? Where are we going for drinks? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I, I haven't heard act five in a while, but reading over it again, I was just like, this is the most like, I don't know, like leave it to beaver kind of, <laughs> happy-go-lucky like almost absurdly happy ending of a play like I just mm. I have some thoughts about Act 5 I don't want to well, get ahead I'm, of ourselves but. yeah I am actually really looking forward to because I found a lot in Act 5 that I had not seen before and I have some very I had some discoveries while I was reading it um that I, I'm, I'm actually really excited to talk about when we when we get to Act Five, but oh, awesome. but this is um, this is an interesting Tune in next week. 
Yeah. Tune in. Um, but yeah, so I, I, first of all, I just wanted to, to talk about the, the Williams Flewellen interaction. Cause it's, it's, it's like, really, it's really funny. Know you this glove, know the glove. I know the glove is a glove. Like there's just something very kind of, um, there's a lot of sort of stichomythia in this, in this little section. And there, there is a kind of sense that this is like sort of a cabaret act something about this, like, no, I'm going to hit you. No, I'll hit you. No, I'm arrest you. I don't, you know, um, there, there's something's very sort of who's on first about, about this little interaction. I was um, just going to say it's so Abbott and Costello. It's yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, what were, what were either, either of, of, of your, uh, Zoe, Amy, Julia, any, any sort of thoughts about, about, uh, the beginning of the scene before, before the King comes in? I think it's, it's just, it's really funny. Cause it's, oh, I think he's gonna, he needs you. Cause you're going to be knighted. Yeah. Good things are going to happen. You, you know, that sort <laughs> of, it's comedically kind of brilliant. It's so simple, but I love it. I'm also just, like curious about like this, like putting one's glove in one's hat thing. Yeah. Cause like, I, I just feel like Flewellen like has always just like got something in his hat. Like <laughs> it's like the Welsh thing of like having a leak in your hat. And he talks about that like constantly. And then like, he's got this glove in his hat and then. <laughs> Hats were the new pocket. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, like, I just don't, it just seems so it just is such a like I, I want to know a little bit I wish we had a dramaturg who could sort of <laughs> tell me about like what putting the glove like if the, like is it supposed to look ridiculous like is that intentionally supposed to look ridiculous or is that sort of like a common thing of like yeah is this like the the mar the marlboro reds like in the yeah. vietnam soldiers hat uh helmet kind of yeah, thing I just like I can't help but think of him looking like slightly like a weird chicken like he's got this like little <laughs> sticking out of it like I know I know for a fact that hats were very big during this time right and in fact hats I love hats I think they're so cool but up until very recently like you didn't go out without a hat you always wore a hat when you when you went outside if you look at all the sort of fashion plates of of all the previous centuries like up through the 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 50s uh, even everyone's got some sort of head covering which is really interesting so i would imagine that they would be both fashionable and also utilitarian um yeah. and it seems because because the other soldier because williams has has put the glove in his hat um it does seem it's almost it's like an armband right there's something about it that's like this is a signal to the world about something is is the impression that i get from this that it's, I guess it's, it's just yeah sort of, like it, for me it's like because it has such sort of like preposterous abbott and costello like i guess I, I like we've spoken about before and i think zoe g said when we were like in the first like nim pistol bardolph scene like i i also struggle so much with the sort of comedic tone of a lot of these kinds of things and I'm just sort of like now how silly is this like you yeah. know and and like are we supposed to there's things that I'm like I don't want to sort of have there be this like weird like modern oh, what's the word I can't I can't think of the word but this like weird modern comedic tone that like mm. feels very sort of out of place you know yeah. but also 
it feels like it's supposed to be that like that breath so Mm. like the exhale the audience's exhale after the after the battle but But as we've said it's like the exhale after the battle that wasn't the exhale after the battle of rhetoric you know um especially in plays like this where like the comedy of it is so dated, you know? And so it's sort of like mm. the things that are probably like, like the, the, the scene with, um, the, the scene with the French, you know, where it's, you're sort of like, this is like so hard to understand because it's all just like weird references to things that like, we don't have any reference for as a, as a contemporary mm. audience. So like, how do you, how do you marry in playing these kinds of scenes, how do you marry like that tone of levity and, and comedy for the audience so that they sort of like understand why this is here with what's actually in the scene? You yeah. Know? I think that's a great question. And I, you know, I think I will just repeat something that I know I've probably said in quite a few of these is that I think a lot of comedy and particularly in Shakespeare and particularly in Shakespearean comedies um happens for the audience and not for the characters right so that like the situational comedy like midsummer night's dream we're all like laughing when you know demetrius and and lysander both get uh fall in love with helena because they're you know they've got flower power on their eyes you know (laughs) and we all laugh at that but for the characters in that scene it's like a tragedy it's like deathly serious and it's and it's it's heartbreaking and it's like Helena's speech Hermia about like female friendship and the power of female friendship being broken is like one of the most heartbreaking speeches in the play but it's also like one of the funniest when you're watching this whole thing because it's usually mixed with a whole lot of physical whatever so to me the comedy is in how you stage it as opposed to yeah yeah because also like like you said like in I've seen bad productions of Midsummer where it's sort of it's play like the 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 Helena plays it in a way that you're just sort of like oh like I'm actually really sad about like this isn't funny like I just feel uncomfortable about laughing at this woman who's like suffering so and Mm -hmm. so I think that like it really takes a good comedian and also like a good director to understand how to make it clear that like it's so like how to give the audience permission to laugh at that which I think is always a tough thing in a Shakespeare play is like how do you give the the audience permission to actually engage with the material as a contemporary audience member and not just like you know it's it's the thing of you you go see um a play a Shakespeare play with you know a bunch of people over a certain age and they're going to have a completely different different reaction to a younger audience and like try like getting that younger audience to understand that they are allowed to engage with it as they would a contemporary <laughs> text is so is such a weird challenge yeah. um, and I feel like I, I feel that very very much with this specific scene and with this like you know ping-ponging back and forth between the, the the gravity of the sort of situation and the 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 desire this these like comedic breaks like we've said throughout the whole play yeah absolutely I, I'll just add and then I will go on to Zunum and Esther that um I have frequently gotten shushed by audience members when I go to a Shakespeare play for laughing when I found something funny even if it was like a comedic moment in say a tragedy I've gotten shushed before and I'm like no actually 
I should be encouraging you <laughs> to yeah. laugh because that's funny. Like what they just that, did was funny. That's happened to me a bunch of times before. And like stuff like yeah. Shakespeare in the park where people like yeah. have these ideas about like the reverence that we should give to oh, Shakespeare God. versus like, how do we engage with this? As a living, it's breathing crazy. thing and not yeah, a museum exactly. piece. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. Um, Zunum and Esther. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to say that um, I think that it's very dramatic to kill children in a play. And because it's very dramatic, it's also very powerful. So, and it, it informs what comes after. So I think what happens when you kill all the boys in your play mm. and I think what happens is that all the men then immediately become boys mm. it's just uh, you you cannot kill the the childish life of this earth if you if you raise that to the ground it will rear its head again and in this play after the news that the boys have been killed the soldiers then become slowly very childish and more and more hmm. funny. And I think it's very interesting. Oh, wow. That is wonderful. Esther, I love that idea. That's sort of a, a homage to the, to the dead boys or to the yeah. loss of their life. Yeah. And their, and their innocence, right? And their, their sort of playfulness as well. That's really yeah. wonderful. That's wow. That's amazing. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to dissect that. <laughs> I think also it ties a little to the, the boy's speeches, the, the boy who has these soliloquies. Mm. Much of the play characters are being justified. Like Welsh people are being justified. Irish people, um, nobility, um, you know, lower class people, people are presenting themselves and justifying themselves. And here you have this boy who needs no justification. He needs no apology. He is a child. He is unformed. He is innocent. And so he speaks his mind free of this agenda that mm -hmm. all the adults, all the adult characters in the play have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and he actually speaks truth to us. In a, in a way that not a lot of other characters. And he has a, 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 an intimate relationship with the audience in a way that not a lot of characters do in this play. Not, not a lot of characters get moments alone with the audience. The chorus certainly does, the boy does. And then I think apart from those two, I think Henry just gets that one speech by himself. And other than that, I don't think there's any other moments with characters alone in the play which which tells you a lot you know about this is also coming at the time when he's about to do his best soliloquies arguably some of his best soliloquies ever about six of them in ha in hamlet you know um so i think it's 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 interesting always to me who in shakespeare gets these intimate moments with the audience and these moments alone the boy was um a gift from henry to falstaff yes maybe or maybe it's a different boy, but anyway, it's again a remembrance of Falstaff because Falstaff mm. speaks to the audience a lot in the Henry the Fourth plays. He has mm. these soliloquy um, that, that are directed toward the audience or, or are self-contemplative. 
And, um, and so having the boy doing that, I think kind of is a sort of a hearkening back to all stuff too, sometimes. That's wonderful. Yeah, because those are, those are our, our, our prose soliloquies, right? Of which, of which Falstaff was so wonderful at, at, at putting together and creating. There's a wonderful video and maybe I'll a- attach it in the description for this um, of Orson Welles um, on a TV special putting on his Falstaff makeup in front of a television audience and then just talking about Falstaff as he's doing it. And it's, it's amazing. He, he, he sort of talks a lot about the innocence of Falstaff and this sort of hearkening to a more, a a greener time, I think is the phrase he uses Um, a time of a time where the grass was green. And I mean, of course it's like a mythic place. It's a mythic England that never actually existed, but it's like, he comes from this place of make believe and imagination. And um, there is, there is something about that, that I think ties these three plays together, but also like like we've said so many times we just feel his absence in a in a very big way in this in this play and we have to make up for it with a different kind of comedy than we had before and I think which which circles all the way back to your to your point Julia of the the sort of challenges of staging this and um uh, maybe this is just because I took a, a wonderful architecture <laughs> workshop with the young Shakespeare players of Madison, Wisconsin um, over Zoom that I'm just thinking about rhythm. And to me, I think the comedy from this comes from the staging and the rhythm of of uh, of the interaction. Because um, prose does have rhythm, right? It's not just, even though verse has very structured, strict rhythm, prose has rhythm too like we we know when we hear a good phrase um a lot of the great you know orators uh have very balanced prose and then i of course i I would love to talk about williams because i i I think this amazing speech of his about you were deceptive essentially is what he's saying you didn't come to me as you are you know as at who with honestly Right. He's, I, you know, his entrance comes with Henry saying, oh, yeah, I've got to be honest. And then I'm just shocked that Williams speaks right up to the king. Yeah. I, I it's like, wow. <laughs> um, it's as if Williams still sees him as the guy in the, the hooded guy that's going throughout the camp. He yeah. has, Williams has no, no problem saying it's not my fault. It's yours. Yeah. You were the one, you know. So I, it's, I think this ends kind of oddly um, for Williams because, you know, his last line is, I will none of your money and that's it. Yeah. Um, There's no back and forth between um, Williams and the king. The king doesn't really say anything to him, just says Exeter, give him some money and let's, you know, here we go. And it uh, is interesting that that final line, I will none of your money, mm-hmm. is that to Flewellen or the king or, or both? The king. Right. And that's like, a staging. Yeah, that's a staging. Because he uh, has no response to give him the crowns, right? Uh-uh. He just responds right. to, <laughs> you, you, you have bad shoes. <laughs> your shoes is not, is not so good. I, I wonder if that's like the... the <laughs> The Shakespeare equivalent of what are those? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> 
yeah were there were there any other thoughts about this the the williams uh henry interaction i think we're very contemplative tonight which is yes cool that's cool to me that this is a very important interaction um because you know what what is the the thing that distinguishes um henry from his predecessors is his ability to connect with the people that he rules right and not just the nobility but also for lack of a better well the working class i mean that's really he's he's he is historically good at interacting with the working class and this is an interesting moment uh to me it's sort of a test of how well does that work now that he's not just the the crown prince he's the king um and will he be allowed to have that same level of, of intimacy um, that he had when he was the prince with a class of people that, um, that he used to have such familiarity with? But I, 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 there is something about this interaction that is sort of to me like the person going back to high school, you know, after being away. And there's, there's something like weird and different about it. And it's not what you remember I was miserable in high school so I I never had any like yearnings to go back but I for those people who had a pleasant high school experience I have been told there is like a weird thing of going back and oh yeah I was I was a different person when I was here and and I wonder if 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 Henry is maybe doing is having sort of a similar like he can't really go back I guess is is what I'm sort of posing yeah, you can never go home again. I mean, yeah. he's trying to relive the bar, you know, the bar scene. And mm. I think this kind of falls flat with Williams. I, I mm -hmm. don't see Williams bonding with Hal. I don't see him becoming a nim or a pistol. Um, Williams is just going to go off and say, you know, that was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> the king was really strange and tried to blame me for something, for hitting somebody. You know? Yeah. And you were, mm -hmm. of course, keeping keeping your word. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh no, um, um, you go ahead. Oh, I was I was just going to say that Williams was, in fact, being an honest man and keeping his word. Was yeah. just the end of my thought. I was just going to say that um, Henry's trying to make that connection, but I do think I agree with you. He fails uh, to. Um, to work with in, in the same way, to um, relate to this uh, stand-in Falstaff. Mm. Um, and he's trying to get him to play, I think. Uh, How canst thou make me satisfaction? It was ourself thou didst abuse. But William's speech there um, reminds him that that's no longer possible because of William's, the way William's reacts. And so he has to his new way of relating to people who he used to relate to so well is to uh well give them money <laughs> yeah yeah which is uh incidentally what he did with the people he hung out with previously when he banished them he yeah. also decided to pay for their lifestyle until they reform themselves but it's it's interesting how the the sort of currency for him has changed from from a sort of social currency to a monetary currency, which is just interesting. 
Yeah. It's also interesting just that we've been talking about Henry, like, I guess, warring with who he was and who he is now. Because I feel like that's just kind of the theme for the entirety of this play, even at the beginning. Like, I think it's, I can't remember who says it, but someone in the church is talking about how he was young, but now, and mm. like silly, but now he's like a much more mature. And it's just very intense volta face that no one kind of knows where it came from. And like, even with the way the French perceive him, they're still living in the past. And that's why they underestimate him. And then when he like, come, pretends to be, when he like dresses up in that cloak and like no one knows who he is, he's even still like trying to relate to that, who he used to be. And so it's, a, I feel like this is almost like a coming of age play in a way, even though he's yeah. of age. <laughs> it's, him, it's him like kind of like, still harking on the past and like who he used to be because I wonder if there was a part of him when he was younger saying he wouldn't be who he is now and now he has mm-hmm. to like face up the facts that he is older and he has all these people's deaths and he just can't be Hal anymore yeah Ab- I, I think absolutely not there you know as, as we've been saying it's like there's just no you can't turn back time I mean they they broke all the time turners in the Ministry of Magic in book five. Like, you can't go back. <laughs> Sorry, Harry Potter reference. I had to sneak, like, one in. I just needed one. I just... You're canceled. <laughs> I know, that was bound to happen. Well, are there any sort of final thoughts on... We've now spent uh, sort of two episodes on Act 4... One of the longest acts, I think, in in the Shakespeare canon. Any any sort of final thoughts on the from from that chorus speech, Izzy, um, all the way through to our final. Let's go back to England. We've been in France for a while. Uh, the one note that I missed to uh, mention is that, at least in this section, uh, the Dauphin's last line is about something, something, playing dice. And I like that it all starts with the tennis balls and it ends with a game of dice. That's yeah. lovely. Thank you, Colin. That's... It also really does feel like two separate acts. Yeah. Structurally, it feels like this was meant to be act five and then they were like, oh, right, Catherine, let's have a... <laughs> um because it's just like before battle and kind of during and after whereas like I feel like you look at other plays that have battles and it's it's a bigger break yeah maybe that's incorrect maybe I'm just but it feels different in other plays when there are big battles like even Henry four one like that is it feels very separate like there's the conclusion right here um yeah I don't well, know and I'm thinking of Macbeth too yeah, Izzy. I was about to say that one too because it's so and those of course there are big fights but the lead up is more like tiny 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 scenes and there we go um yeah. and it's very separate whereas this really I think why it feels long and why it is long is it, it's kind of doing both of those things um in one act and uh i mean we don't know when they performed this if they always performed you know everything or whatever but i do think it's interesting because it i mean doing this over two nights has really been like oh this is the same act (laughs) um yeah especially when we talk like it feels like there should be a chorus speech before this because 
we don't, we just kind of talk about the anticipation of Agincourt yeah. in that speech, but we don't go into the like, then the battle, you know? Like, yeah. So it does feel really, it feels strange in some, in a play that's this structured when it comes to these prologues. I mean, it even has an epilogue, like, <laughs> um, and, and yes, epilogues are more common in Shakespeare plays than prologues, I would say. Like I could think of a lot more of them, but they're usually in comedies um, like Puck or um, <laughs> Rosalind and all that. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I think it's funny that it's so structured and yet the fourth act kind of jolts us out of that. And I don't know if that's, if that could also be seen as a, um, something on purpose of like, this battle is so crazy that it's going to jolt us out of our structure. Um, but yeah. it's just something that I was, while listening to this act, that was really um, interesting to me and kept coming up. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for, for sharing that. I, I, I do think there is... What's so funny is it's the anticipation before the battle. We get three scenes before the battle, huge emotions running high. And then it's like the battle's kind of over by the time we go from like... We few, we happy few to like the French have been captured. And it's like, where were the big fights? And obviously like every movie, film, television adaptation of this has put a huge amount of money into these huge big budget battles, but they're not really in the play. Like there, there isn't like some epic integral series of fights between characters. This is, it's much more symbolic than, um, down to the nitty gritty of sort of fight choreography, um, which is interesting. Any, any other final thoughts? Ariana, I, I, I was curious before we got um, cut off yesterday about when you asked about, does anyone have any new thoughts towards this play mm. given week's news? I was curious yeah. about what your thoughts on that might be. Oh, well, I, yeah. So just for our audience, cause we, we probably won't be releasing this um, until uh, maybe March. Um, but what, what happened in the, in the week between was uh, January 6th, we recorded our the first half of act four. And then we had the January 6th storming of the U S Capitol by anti-democratic forces is the kindest term I will use. Um <laughs> who were riled up by a whole lot of rhetoric that got mm. hammered into their brains over and over to me, because I love language, it was, and I love rhetoric. Um, it was a bit of a, just thinking about how powerful language is and how when you say something over and over again, even if it's false, does it become true to the listener? And how, I, I don't know, I was just thinking a lot about the power of language and the power of imagination um, that was stimulated for these people to believe in the right. cause that yeah. they were seemingly okay. fighting for. You know. The Folger uh, Shakespeare Library has released a series of lesson plans um, that compare a speech from soon-to-be former President Trump, from uh, Julius Caesar, from Henry V, and uh, I've seen a few different ones, but the one they sent out today was actually a speech from Black Panther, which is a really cool kind of combination there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Interesting. I mean, 
over my middle schoolers heads but otherwise I would totally teach it because it sounds amazing <laughs> yeah I mean there there was uh Ro Khanna the uh one of the congressmen from uh California was on Democracy Now talking about you know listening to that speech he didn't it, it w- was like listening to Mark Antony talking to get the mob riled up right mm. except it was as if the person writing the speech had absolutely no talent um which i i thought was a really interesting caveat but i thought it was interesting that the way that he was making sense of this violent act was by putting into into the context of one of shakespeare's most political plays right julius caesar but that i i also do quite fervently believe whatever we may say about author's intent I do think that Shakespeare had a great uneasiness with mobs Mm. I think the threat of mob violence is something that haunts a lot of the plays and they're never like there is a there is a difference between I think one of the most chilling scenes in all of Shakespeare again Julius Caesar is the sin of the poet scene right after yeah. they've been riled up yeah, yeah, yeah they've been riled up we're gonna go burn literally we're gonna burn the capital um yeah. is like a line in the play this poor guy named Cinna, who happens to be the name of one of the politicians who killed caesar who's a poet who is artist. a poet of course is literally ripped apart by a mob on stage because of his name right and because of and of course, the, I don't know, there, there, there is something to me about that that was so accurate about the way that mob mentality works, that like, we'll find any excuse we can to justify our actions, including the fact that this guy has the same, we know that this isn't one of the conspirators, but they say tear him for his bad verses, right? And he's uh-huh. torn. Yeah, and there's yeah, something yeah. so chilling about that that scene to me yeah. um the the communal violence is sort of this shared experience by a group of people that was riled up by someone who knew exactly what he was doing in fact as soon as i mean i've been thinking about this play a lot also but also because i'm supposed to be directing julius caesar this summer that you know once the mob leaves to go burn down the capital and burn down all the stuff Mark Antony says to the audience, now let it work. Mischief, thou art afoot. Take thou what course thou wilt. Which mm. in the context of everything that happens, I think. Cool, me, I'm pretty queasy right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, but I just, mm. to me, the, the, the resounding final thing is how powerful language and rhetoric is. And yeah, and I think emotion too. I'm thinking about how high emotion is in Henry V, even with the French, you know, that, I mean, that whole, that whole scene is very um, charged and like, well, yeah, we're gonna get him, we're gonna get him, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's haughty because he's making fun of the French, but it, it does not mean that that's not under it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that, that people deeply feel these convictions. Like, right, I don't right. think anyone was like, oh yeah, I'm just doing this because I feel like it. Like th- right. these people have been so uh, bewitched, bothered and bewildered by a specific set of language and rhetoric that's been directed at them for years now. Hmm. That how, how could their reality, uh, anyway, I, I, it's chilling to me. I guess is what I'm saying, but not surprising. 
I think mm. that's the other important thing. All these people yeah. that are saying this is an America read a freaking yeah. history book for fuck's sake. This yeah, is exactly yeah. America. 